this morning as we worship together, we're going to continue talking about something that we have been talking about the last couple of weeks. The last couple of weeks, we looked at two different things in Scripture, two different truths that every Christian, every member, and we're specifically talking about members of of local churches, people who have professed Christ, all of us, all Christians should be members of local churches. This is the biblical standard, the biblical precedent where Paul and others would go to these places. They would tell people about Jesus, and before they left, they would put together a local body of believers, a local church. And so in our local churches, that's when I say member, that's what I'm talking about, where, where our membership is. And so for those of you who attend here, who have joined here, have become a part of our fellowship, then you, I'm talking about here. And what we need to know is that every member, biblically, is a minister. And we looked at Ephesians chapter 4, and we saw how God gave us, of course, he's given us his spirit, the ultimate thing. And then through his spirit, he has given us gifts. He has given us leaders to equip us for the work of the ministry, equip the saints, all of us, for the work of the ministry. And so every member is a minister. And then last week, we looked at how every member is a priest. And we, looked at, we went back to the Old Testament, and we saw how in Exodus 19, God called the Israelites to the mountain. He told them through Moses, to, he told Moses to go down and tell the people that they were to be to him a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, that they were going to be his special people of all the people in the world, the Israelites, the Jewish people, were going to be his special people in all the world to go and make him known throughout the nations, a kingdom of priests. And we saw how the Israelites failed to do that in the Old Testament. And in fact, we looked at Hosea where God says that you are not my people, which is, was a shocking thing to have been said, since God himself had called the Israelites out and called them his special people, called them his kingdom of priests and his holy nation. You are not my people. And then he also said, you have not received mercy. You have not found mercy. No mercy. And Hosea actually named his children these things. So if you thought your name was bad, no, don't worry. There are worse names out there. Uh, no mercy being one of them. Not my people being one of them. And so... <clears throat> We went to the New Testament and we saw how uh, even when, well, let me say that in Hosea, even when um, God said that through Hosea, he also said, but you shall be called children of the living God. And so we see the fulfillment of both. Like, how is it not my people and yet children of the living God? And it's through Jesus. Jesus came. Jesus was born through the Israelite heritage and lineage and he was born and was a perfect man. He never sinned. And at the end of his life, he went to a cross to be crucified, to die, not to be punished for his sins, but to die to cover our sins so that we, our sins could be forgiven and we could be made right with God and we could be his special people. So once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. Once we were not his people, but now we are his people. We looked at 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, where it said that. And then we looked at Revelation 5 and were reminded of a verse there where, excuse me, where we see in Revelation 5 that all the nations looking ahead to the end of time in Revelation, we see where all the nations had people who were saved. Every tribe, every tongue had people who were worshiping Jesus. And so we talked about how we today, we have a responsibility to be a priest of God. 
And so that's where we've been. Every member is a minister. Every member is a priest. And this morning, we're going to look at how every member is a missionary. And when I heard that Nan was going to be gone this morning, I almost wanted to, uh, to put this off, but I, I couldn't. I've got, you know. But don't worry, because next week, every member is a missionary part two. So she'll, she'll hear that one. So <clears throat> every member is a missionary. Let's turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, we're going to be in verses 1 through 20. And for time's sake, I will, I, will, I will be able to spend more time on certain verses than others. And so in Luke chapter 10, verse 1, and this will be up on the screen. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Um, it says, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others. Now, I want to pause there and say, uh, English Standard Version says 72. Some translations say 72. Some translations say 70. And so I wanted to spend a second just to talk about why do some translations say one thing and others say another? Well, when it comes to the Old Testament, we're pretty much universal there. There's not much that is different at all. And the reason is, is because in the Old Testament, when the Jewish people would, when, when the Lord would give a word, there would, it would be written, right, by the person who received it or a scribe. It would be written. And then it would meticulously be written over like they would write the entire book of the law and they knew how many words were in it and they would count the words and, and they would even count the letters and they knew that the middle letter was this specific letter and so if the middle letter wasn't that letter they threw it away and started over that's meticulous and so that was how they did the old testament now you get to the new testament and the word of the lord came and things are being written let's say for example, Luke writes his, right? Now, his, he has a little more comfort when he's writing his, and he's writing the gospel according to Luke, and he also wrote the, the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. And so he's writing these things, and there's a little time to write these down, to pass them on. Uh, but here's what happens, is that as the New Testament authors are writing their letters, and they're written to be passed around, and people are making copies, they're also being persecuted. They're also being chased, and so they're literally running for their lives. People are burning these copies when they find them, and so we have very few parts of the old transcripts and manuscripts that are left. Now, the originals, what people call the autographs, most of them were written on material that, of course, could not be preserved to this day. So we are really... um, we needed people to write that and to copy it and to pass it down generation to generation. Now, the amazing thing about the Scripture is, is that in almost all of these old transcripts that we have, they're in harmony and agreement. And sometimes there are little bitty differences like here where some say 72, some say 70. And usually I, I go with the English Standard Version because what some translations like it do, some of the more modern translations is it goes to the earliest manuscript that it can find, and if there's commonalities there, then it says, okay, this is, this is what it's saying. Uh, we're we're going to go with this. And, and the way this would work is, let's say, I write a letter. Not that I would be a biblical writer. Although, I mean, I would be in good company because, like, David sinning and ruining the whole kingdom. You know, things like I'd be in good company with people who make mistakes. But let's say I wrote a letter, and I gave a copy 
I had my copy, and I gave it to Richard for him to copy, to make a copy, because, you know, they didn't have Xerox back then, right? And so, Tanya, here's this. Can you make a copy? David makes a copy. All right, now let's say that, let's say I had 70 or 72 in mine, and for uh, argument's sake, we'll say 70, which is what uh, some manuscripts have. So, um, I, I say 70, and I hand it to these three, and one of them writes 72, and they take their three copies, and let's say that David and Tanya say 70 in theirs, but Richard wrote 72 in his, and Richard passes his to three people. Let's say that he passes it to Ken and to Nan and to Dan. <laughs> Sorry, it rhymed. I had to go there. Uh, <clears throat> so if his said 72, what do you think, or I forget what I said his said, 70. If his says 70, what do you think the three people who copied his are going to be? Yeah, and this didn't happen once or twice as far as copies I'm talking about. This happened hundreds and hundreds of times where people would copy and they would pass on and it would, they, they wouldn't just copy it and give it to the person behind them. They would copy it and take it to another country, right? And, and so when you look at how preserved and how accurate the Word of God is, it is amazing. It is the God-breathed, inspired Word of God. Everything that it claims as truth is true. It is inerrant. And, and so what we have to do is, is that uh, we have to make sure that we're finding the, most, the oldest, the most accurate manuscripts we can. And so uh, when they, if you go back throughout translations throughout history, uh, if you go back to the Great Bible, this was before, it's an English version of the Bible, but before King James, so a long time ago, the Great Bible, <clears throat> it, uh, it was great, it was called Great because of its size, it was a huge book, but anyway, uh, the, the manuscripts available to them weren't many. They had, basically for the Great Bible, they had the Latin Vulgate, which was a translation into Latin, uh, and then they had some, some uh, original or older, I say orig- when I say original, I mean original languages, Greek, Hebrew, um, but primarily the Bible was written, the Old Testament in Hebrew, the New Testament in Greek. And so we have these translations and um, they would go back to that. Then when the King James Version was written, they had pretty much four complete manuscripts in the original languages, which was really good at the time. It was incredible that they had those available to them. And it's just uh, incredible to see how God has preserved his word through the years. That was in 1611, for those of you who don't know, the first edition of that that was published was in 1611. And then you keep going and you get to modern day, and how many, so let me tell a story about when I was in high school. When I was in high school, there were computers, for those of you in here who might be younger than me, <clears throat> there were computers. However, uh, people did not have internet in their homes, right? Like, a few rich people did, but normal people did not. And so I would have to go to this place uh, to write my senior paper. It was called the library. Yeah, novel idea. But anyway, I would go to the library, but in our town, the, the public library was right across the street from the basketball court. And so every day I went to the library, or I parked there, and then went and played basketball. But in order for me to research anything, where did you have to go? Yeah, you had to go to the library. And I remember when the internet started coming out, 
And you could research stuff. Now, you've got to be careful what you're looking up on the Internet, right? People could make stuff up. But if you're going to legitimate sources, now, when I research things, it is amazing. On my iPad, on this right here, I, can, I have over 150 commentaries just on this little thing, right? Like, now, I have more resources at my fingertips than the most amazing scholars in years past had. And so now, because of the internet, because of communication, not just the internet, right? I mean, even the uh, travel is quicker than it used to be. Phone lines exist. Internet exists. Things like that. And so we have the ability to trace back, not just like places where there are entire manuscripts, but we have the ability to trace back to where there was like this one letter written over here. And we can trace it back and, and we can get all the way back to where we see that split between 70 and 72. And sometimes it's difficult to know beyond where to go beyond that. And so in those cases, the translators have to give their best guess. And in most translations, like in the English Standard, you can't see this up on the screen, but in, in my copy right here, even on my iPad and in my written copy, um, there's a number one by 72, and it says some manuscripts say 70, right? And so when it says that, you don't have to be worried about um, why does this say that or why does it... Now, it's interesting sometimes to go back and research that and look at that, um, but you can know that what you're reading today can be trusted. And even in the places where there's uncertainty, it does not affect the meaning. It does not affect... now. Sometimes it might affect, like, uh, some cross-references. For example, even though English Standard says 72, the reason I believe that it, it should be 70 here, but I could be completely wrong, right? Who am I? To, I mean, I'm no one. And so, uh, but it's because in the Old Testament, there are some significant, two different significant things that are happening with 70. One is there at the Tower of Babel. Y'all remember Genesis 11? At that time... There were 70 families named, 70 families who were coming together and not wanting to go, not wanting to multiply and fill the earth as God commanded, but they were coming together. And here we're going to read about this story about where Jesus is sending out, where he's telling them, do what I have called you to do. And so there are some little things like that. Now, uh, that was free. That, that wasn't a part of the sermon this morning. So now I've got 22 minutes to finish this up. But I thought, I thought it was important because when you see that the screens here say 72, and some of you might have a translation that says 70, I feel like it's very important for us to know why some translations say one thing and others say another. All right? So that's where we are this morning. I could literally, um, not that any of you would want to hear this, but I could literally sit here and talk about this for six, seven hours. This is something I've studied intensely. We can go back and talk about the original languages and the original way it was written, and then why, like, in Eng we speak English, so I'll use English, why it was translated into English as these things. And, and then um, I believe that there's also a need for modern translations for another reason. For example, I'll use King James Version as an example since it's an uh, a older translation that we all are familiar with, or most of us. Um, when you read the New when you read the King James Version and it says gay clothing, well, that means something very different today in modern English, doesn't it? Well, if we were to say gay clothing. And so we want to make sure that 
we are translated in, in, in a way that modern people can understand it. And then, in addition to that, we have all sorts, many languages all over the world. I don't even, I'm not sure how many languages there are, but way over a thousand in some continents. And so that's a lot. There are certain tribes where they're the only tribe who speaks that language. And I believe we need to translate the Bible into every language. There are Bible translation agencies and uh, groups out there who that is their purpose. Tyndall and some others who make it their purpose. Um, Of course, the Gideons are, are in that also. And we are trying to not just hand out translations in, in languages that people speak, but we don't have them. They don't exist to hand out in some cases. So we have to learn the language. We have to be able to have linguists translate it into those languages. If you want to see some incredible videos, get on YouTube later and just search for receiving Bibles in their translation. And you will see tribes across the world who are, the plane is flying in to deliver the copies of the Bible written in their own translation where they've never seen one before. And the people are celebrating, it's like an Old Testament festival. It's, it's incredible. And so I really encourage you to look at something like that. We need to make sure that we are getting the word of God to the ends of the earth because here we are spoiled where the Bible is sitting on our shelves or sitting on our phones and those apps aren't open or those Bibles aren't taken off the bookshelf or off the family table or whatever, wherever our Bible is sitting. And there are people around the world who are longing, longing to see the Word of God in their language. And so again, that was free and extra. That's not the main point of where we're going this morning, but I felt like it was an appropriate time since we have uh, these two numbers, 70, 72. Now I'm going to continue reading. Verse 10. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Now, it's important to note that this is a special sending. This isn't necessarily the normal sending of of people. This isn't everyday life. This is a special event. However, the same language and theology that is used here was also used in the Great Commission. They were about to go. And in the Great Commission, he says, go, therefore, right, and make disciples of all nations. That is a common thing for all people. This example was specific to these people. However, we can learn from this event of what it looks like to be sent. And when I say missionary, I want to be clear here that I do believe that there is a special call that God gives certain people to go into foreign culture and go into foreign countries or maybe a foreign culture right here in our own country and to be a missionary to those people. And so that's what usually when we think of missionaries, that's what we think about, right? Someone who's going to another country like Terry and Nan went to Africa. The Reeves went to Thailand from, from this church. And so we think, When we think missionary, we think that. And that is a proper way to think missionary. But Paul, when he was going on his missionary journeys, he was going from this place to that place to this new place. And and he was going to these different places to establish churches. And and some of them, some of those cultures weren't too different than the one he went to before. And so, yeah, he is going to these new places and these new cultures. Um, But the geographic area, it would have all fit in the United States 
pretty much, or not pretty much, it would. And so we have to look at that, and we have to understand that, yes, there are certain people who are called to go into different cultures um, and move their, uproot their entire family and move, but we also have to realize that every single one of us are called to go every day into our workplace. We are missionaries to our workplace. If you're a student and you're going to school, you are a missionary to the classroom, to your, the people you go to school with, to your teachers. We have to realize that if we're retired, then wherever we're going, whether it's the senior center up here in Mansfield, whether it's the garden club in Fort Smith, wherever we're going, that we have a responsibility to take Jesus with us, to go and share Christ with those people. And here is an instance in Luke's gospel where, and it's the only time, it's the only gospel that records this event, but we see where Jesus is sending out these people two by two, and he's sending them out to these different towns. And, and this isn't like they're going to China. This would be like us going somewhere fairly local to another town. And so, verse 2, And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. You know, this is a... Um, this is the time of year for the harvest for a lot of people in the South. And where I'm from, from the delta um, of the Mississippi River, <clears throat> I grew up just a few miles from the Mississippi River in southeast Arkansas. You could, um, the town I grew up in, it, like you get to the end of the town and there's the bridge that goes into Mississippi. And if you head south, uh, you've got about 15 minutes before you hit Louisiana. So I grew up in farm country, and this is one of my favorite times of year, especially a little earlier than now, when the cotton fields, because when I was a kid, there was a lot of cotton grown in that area, and it would just be white, just white, as far as you can see. I can remember coming home, Rose and I, when we first got married, we lived in Alabama, and I can remember driving across that bridge between Greenville, Mississippi, and Lake Village, Arkansas, and there was a new bridge put in, and we'd, you, we would drive across it, and, you, and it was really high, and you would crest, get to the, the top of that bridge, and you could see all those cotton fields just in full bloom. It was beautiful, and, uh, you know, it, it, let me just put it in your context, right? It's like looking at the mountains and just, wow, I got to grow up here? That's how the cotton fields were for me. And so I would see those cotton fields, and they were just white and beautiful, and, and it represented God's goodness and God's graciousness because the crop came in, right? There wasn't some sort of disaster. It was here, and that's a beautiful thing. The harvest is plentiful. But what if there was no, what if, in my context and growing up, what if there were no machines to pick that cotton? What if there were no people to work those fields, right? And where I'm from now, there's big farms, but uh, back then, it was primarily little farms, small farms, family farms, where the, the people who owned those farms were the ones working them, right? And what if there was this harvest ready to be gathered, but no people to gather it? The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And, and I believe that that is still true today in a spiritual sense. There are so many people who are ready to come to Jesus. 
there are so many people who would follow him if we would just reorganize our lives and prioritize sharing the gospel and loving people. I'm not saying everyone. There, there might be some people that you love and share the gospel with your entire life and they never come to him. But I am saying that I guarantee you that if we did a better job of prioritizing our lives in a way where we purposefully were able to show the love of Jesus and share the gospel, the good news of Jesus with them, that people would come to know him because he is worth following. He is God. He is good. He is our creator. He is our redeemer. One day he will fix everything that has been broken. We have these promises in scripture and he is God. He will call people to himself. But he uses our testimony and us going and sharing the gospel with people. He uses the words of our mouth to deliver his good news. And if our mouths aren't delivering it, then it's, it's not, people are not going to get saved. It's not being delivered. And so we are all missionaries called to take this message to our workplace, our friends, our family, and to the ends of the earth. And we see here that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. What are we to do? We're to pray. We're to ask God, please God, give me the discipline. Give me, revive my heart, soften my heart in a way that when I see lost people, I know you deserve their worship. And I know they need you. I know they need salvation. I know they need to be spared from hell. I know that they need these things. So God, wake me up and give me a desire to go and share the gospel with these people. The, the, the harvest is plentiful. The people are waiting. What are we doing? Why are we not going and sharing the gospel with them? I know that there's a lot of excuses, right? Well, I've told them before. Well, tell them again. I invited them to church. Invite them again. Well, I, you know, in our culture today, talking to someone about Jesus is really dangerous and iffy, and I, you know, I might lose some social status or it might harm my job. Well, first of all, just because you go tell someone about Jesus doesn't mean you have to be a jerk. You can tell them in a kind, loving, gracious way where if they reject what you're saying, you don't get rude. You just say, well, I understand. And, and you go on about your business. Well, I'm sorry you feel that way. We should talk about this again later. I'd love to hear more about why you feel that way. You can use these different, I, I don't even want to say tactics because it's just humanity, just trying to get to know someone, trying to love someone. Our job, our job is not to convert people. Our job is to preach the gospel, to, to share the good news. Jesus converts people. Jesus saves people. Jesus changes hearts. We can't. For us to try is futile. It's God who changes the heart. We're just there to preach the good news that has been preached to us. And when I say preach, I'm just saying you tell people about Jesus. You tell them about his love. So we, we pray that God would raise up people to send out. I don't think our church spends enough time praying, just to be honest. I don't think I spend enough time praying. We have so many needs. We, and, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray for people's health because we definitely should. Our family prays every night pretty much for, for someone in our church for their health. But 
what's more important, our physical health or our, our spiritual eternity? And which one do we pray more for? Most of us pray a lot more for people's health than we do their eternity. So we have to be careful about that. This might be three sermons, not two. <clears throat> so, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Now, I want to say one more thing. You, you, I'm driving over that bridge. I see that cotton field just white, ready for the harvest. What if all the work had gone in to getting that field ready like that. And let me tell you, if you have never been around farmers, it's work. During the summer, it was not rare for people in my community to go to work before the sun went up, came up in the summer when the days are long, go to work before the sun went up, and they got home after the sun went down, long after the sun went down. And they were literally working a lot of times. This was not rare, 18 to 20 hours a day, sleeping the rest, and then going back to work day after day after day. Those were workers. What if all the work went into those fields to get those fields ready for the harvest, and then no one showed up for the harvest? It wouldn't happen, right? Or how about this? More than once, those beautiful white fields, and here comes a hailstorm. Here comes a tornado. Here comes something that just destroys that harvest. And they didn't know, right? The farmers didn't know that those things were coming, and they waited too late. We don't want to wait too late for the harvest. We want to go share the gospel with people now while there's still time. And look, I'm, I'm preaching to Christians here. If, if there are people in here who do not know Christ, then I'll just tell you that there is no one worth knowing more than Jesus. He can save us. He can give us hope. He can give us a purpose and direction and a future. He calls us to be a part of his mission. He sends us out to do these incredible things. So there is no one worth knowing more than Jesus. But for those of us who already know him, why are we waiting to harvest? Why are we waiting to go and tell people about Jesus? Why are we waiting to go and show them his love? We need to turn off our TVs. We need to get off of Facebook. We need to get out of the, the woods. We need to get whatever we're prioritizing above sharing the gospel. We need to make some changes. Now, does that mean that we shouldn't ever do those things? No, we should do those things. And while we're doing those things, let's share the gospel with people. Be like Christ on Facebook. If you're at the hunting club, share the love of Jesus with those people. Some of those people will never go into church. You're the only church they're going to know. And so be like Jesus toward those people. Share the love of Jesus. The, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. What are we doing? Sorry if I'm stepping on some toes. All right, I got to tell the story. I can't, we can't read it. I can't preach it. I've waited too long. So Jesus sends them out two by two, and he tells them, go into these towns don't take anything with you, by the way. No extra clothes, no money, none of that. When you go into a house, 
When you go into a town, look for the people who are going to greet you, who are going to bring you in, and and you stay with them, and you let them feed you because the laborer deserves his wages, and and you let them take care of you, do those types of things. If they don't, if no one in that town takes care of you, then you go out into the street, you dust off your shoes, and you keep on going to the next town. And then when we get to verse 13, in verses 13 through 16, Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you Here's me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So what is this saying? It's saying Jesus was there. The Messiah was there. He was in their towns, and they were rejecting him. That's way worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, who are they rejecting? Some angels? Lot? Well, Lot was kind of in with them, but who are they rejecting? And here's these modern people in Jesus' time who were rejecting God. So woe to you. And then look at what he says. And this is important for those of us who are going out and sharing the gospel with people. Because I remember sharing the gospel when I was younger. I remember sharing the gospel when it was new. And there was nothing like seeing one of my friends come to Jesus. And there was nothing more crushing than when someone would reject him. But it wasn't because they were rejecting him. It was because my ego was soft and I felt like they were rejecting me. It was pride. It was selfishness. And I felt hurt because what I wanted to communicate wasn't valuable to them. And look at what Jesus is saying. It's not about that. Look at verse 16. The one who hears you, hears me. So if someone hears from from what we're saying, the gospel message, they're hearing Jesus, not us. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. Yeah, we're in good company. Yes, I understand that they are, in a sense, rejecting us. But what's more important, that they're rejecting us or that they're rejecting God? And so when they reject We go back and we pray. We ask God, send another laborer. Give me another opportunity. Save this person. And it's not just that they're rejecting Jesus, because that would be enough, but they're rejecting the Father who sent Jesus. And Look at the end of verse 16. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Verse 17, apparently this was a short trip, because the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and all over the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. That's something worth rejoicing about, isn't it? (laughs) They have, even the demons know who Jesus is. Even the demons are responding. All these incredible things, all these incredible things are happening. And Jesus says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Praise God. We're going to be in heaven. We're going to be away from this world where there's pain and sin and hurt and death and sickness and curses. We're away from all that. And we get to be in in the restoration. We get to be where everything is made new, where there's no more sickness, where there's no more war, where there's no more of that, no more death. That's where we get to be because our names are written there. So, yeah, hey, let's be excited about the power of God and what he can do in our lives. But even more than that, let's rejoice that we have an eternity with the Lord awaiting us. Not because of of who we are or what we've done, 
but because Jesus made it possible for our names to be written in that book. Jesus died for our sins. His blood is enough to cover all the blood of all the saints who are called to him, all the sinners who are called to him who will become saints, right? His blood is enough to cover every sin of every person who desires salvation, who calls on his name for salvation. So we're here right now. And we've come to the time of our service where we give an invitation. And if you're not aware of what an invitation is, I will be standing right down here. And you are invited to respond to God in whatever way he's leading you. That could be right there in your seat. Or if you want to come talk to me, if God has been impressing something on your heart and you know for a fact that God is telling you something, then I will be right here. If you need to be saved, hey, come share that with me. I'll pray with you. I'll, I'll counsel you in whatever way I can with whatever you're going through. If you need me to pray for someone, I'll be right here. Or maybe you want to come to the altar and pray. And I'm going to ask that if someone call, comes to the altar this morning, that some of our leaders, if, if a male comes to the altar, that some of our male leaders will come and pray with him. Even if you just do it silently, just put a hand on someone and pray for them as they're at the altar. If, if uh, in the altar, what I'm calling the altar is just these places where you can kneel here. And if a female comes forward, if some of our female leaders will come and pray for them, and you, you respond in whatever way God is leading you. Maybe that's silently sitting where you are, or maybe that's um, singing this song. Will you go ahead and put the song up for me? Because this song is exactly what we've been talking about. Wherever he leads, I'll go. Is that our heart? Is that true? If you can't sing this with truth, don't sing it. Sit down and pray. Come to the altar and pray. If you need to talk to me, I'll be right here. But if you can, then sing this song with all of your heart. But mean it. Don't lie. Don't say these words if you don't mean them. Are you ready to follow him wherever he leads? If he sends you out two by two to the cities, are you ready to go? If he sends you to Africa or somewhere else, are you ready to go? If he sends you to work tomorrow to tell your friends and coworkers about Jesus, are you ready to go? If he tells you to call your child or your grandparents or whoever in your family that needs to hear from you, for forgiveness or for salvation or whatever it might be? Are you ready to go? Are you ready to go wherever he leads? You respond during this invitation. Let us pray. Lord, we love you. And we just pray that as we sing this song, that you would show us where you want us to go, that you would lead us and that we would have the discipline and the love for you to be able to obey. It's in Jesus' name. Help us to respond in whatever way you're leading. Amen. Let's stand and sing this song.